What do you do when you feel threatened? Fight or flight comes to mind, right? Do you avoid the threat altogether? Or maybe you're the type who develops a strategic response. Do you assume the worst about the threat and make it far worse than it really is? Well, hey, you're not alone. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 68th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. detail, historical context that puts you in the action. Last time we watched Paul confronting a demon-possessed woman on the main road just outside of the city gates in Philippi. Here, Paul and Silas are seen as threats to the entire city. What will happen to Korah? What will her owners, Xander and Orion, do? Moreover, what becomes of Paul and Silas? Well, let's tune in. And with that, Let's get started. Alarmed by the sheer volume coming from the shrill voice that screams next to him, Silas cups his ears, though only for a moment. He then moves his hand to his neck to remove the spittle produced by the same young woman. What is wrong with you? Silas asks aloud. Silas looks over at Paul, who is only inches away and has picked up his pace. What do we do? he asks, while looking around to see that it's only the three of them. Where, where do the others go, he wonders. They were right. Just keep walking, Paul says. She'll quiet down in a moment. These men are Duloi of the Most High God. They are here to tell you how to be saved. These men are... Taking his lead from the man just to his left, Silas follows closely and almost bumps into Paul, who has come to an abrupt stop. Stopping himself from running into Paul, Silas takes a sidestep away from Paul and turns around to see what is happening. Oh, Silas quietly mouths while cringing. He looks over at the woman who breathes heavily just inches away from Paul's face. What has gotten into her, Silas wonders. He then returns his gaze to Paul and wonders what happens next. Out of the corner of his eyes, Silas sees the crowd creeping in to get a closer look. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of this woman, Paul yells out. Silas's eyes widen as he waits. The crowd takes a step back. Cora's breathing shallows. Her airways constrict, while each and every fiber of her body tightens. It's as if the large hands of a thousand stonemasons tightly gripped around every single one of her muscles. Tightness turns to ache, and ache rapidly turns to writhe. No longer able to give attention to anything else around her, Cora collapses to the ground and lay unconscious. That's it, Xander says as he bolts towards the scene. What's it, Orion says to Xander, who's no longer there. Wait up, Orion yells out. What's happening? Out of the corner of his eyes, the tent maker sees a man sprinting directly into the crowd and towards the commotion. He weaves and ducks from side to side and even forcefully removes a child from his path by shoving the boy to the ground. Xander, what are you doing? The tent maker wonders. Get a hold of. Oh, Mars, he says while watching Xander give the short Jewish man a blow to the back of the head with his forearm. Paul! Silas yells out. He takes two steps towards Paul and kneels to assess the damage. Steadying himself onto one knee, Silas reaches to check Paul's freshly bloodied face. 
Wham! Silas takes a hit in the upper back that forces him to spread eagle on the road. No sooner than when he slightly raises his head, Silas takes a kick to the side. Then another, and another. Cora's eyes begin to twitch. A clear but long-since-forgotten memory flashes in her mind. She walks along a rocky beach, holding the enormous hand of a bearded man weathered by time and hard living. Ever trusting, a young Cora looks up to see the leather-skinned man who looks back at her with a beaming smile. Crouching down next to Cora, he eyes the sand and picks up some smaller, smooth and flat stones. This is what you want, girlie, he says. These will skip the best. Look, there's a good one. Pick it up. How do yours skip, Daddy? Cora asks. Mine just go kerplunk into the sea. He laughs at this and says, Anything worth doing? He pauses to look Cora deeply in the eyes. Must be practiced. Kick him again, she hears as she begins to wake. Make them pay, she hears another scream out. Hearing more screams from others around her, Cora wakes enough to sit and see what's happening. What are you doing? Stop, she says aloud to the backs of those who are only a few feet away. What are you doing with them? She asks anyone in the crowd. Cora, she hears her name being called out. You're back, Xander says as he rushes over to her. I won't let these men get away with this. With what? Cora asks. What have they done? We thought we lost you when you collapsed, Xander says. We saw the whole thing happen. We watched that man, he points over at Paul, who is just beginning to stir, call upon his God to destroy you. But I'm here, Cora says, and she quickly assesses herself. I feel good. I mean, I really feel... Cora, Xander interrupts her. The spirits of the gods that have lived inside of you, that have given you your gifts, where are they? Are they still... Cora becomes even more alert and begins taking in the scene around her with a new perspective. She begins nodding her head and says, They're... They're... They're what? Xander says, losing his patience. Well, I think they're gone, Cora says with a smile. What is taking them so long? Gaius quietly asks in Luke's ear. I can only teach them so much here. Not everybody can call up the law like Library Timothy over there. We're going to need to send these people away pretty soon. He looks back at a shrugging Luke and asks again, Oh, come on, what is taking them so long? Luke teases. Oh, they're probably just goofing off. With both confusion and pain settling in, Paul musters enough strength to get on his hands and knees. Beginning to lift his head from looking at the ground, Paul sees the feet of those standing above him. Without warning, he suddenly feels the tight grips of two sets of arms under his armpits and along his forearms. Unable to get to his feet, Paul sees the ground moving underneath him. The tops of his feet feel like they have been set on fire as they begin to scrape along the paved road. What's happening? He manages to say to his captors. Go destroy someone else's income, a voice says from above. We've had it with you. Not far behind, Silas has a similar view of the paved road below. Feeling some pain from the freshly made wounds on his knees, hands, and sides, these pains seem minor in comparison to the more immediate pain felt by being dragged by his hair. Why are you doing this? he asks the two men who usher him through the city gates. What is happening? he asks again. Neither say a word. 
Still seated in the middle of the road outside of the city gates, Cora looks around and sees that while some of the vendors have joined in the crowd seen to the arrest of her liberators, others have gone back to tend to their shops. She stands and brushes the dirt off of her garment. She then turns back to see the city gates just up the road, wonders for a moment, and begins walking the other way, towards the river. Seated at a table, in the basilica situated at the western end of the Agora, two stratagoi feast on bread and fruit and privately debate on an issue raised to them moments ago. That's not what the guy said, Titus, Quintus quips as he rips off a part of his bread and drenches it in his oil mix. Both have already attested that he was walking away from the garment vendor when this happened. So when he said he was observing from afar, that's a conflicting state. He suddenly stops to look up at the other end of the marketplace. What is going on over there? I don't know, Titus says, but I'm sure we'll find out soon enough. Grabbing the oil-soaked piece of bread, Quintus chuckles. Remind me, why do I want this job? Move, Orion yells out as he continues to drag Silas by the hair. Get out of the way. These men will pay for disrupting our city. Xander and some of the other vendors yell in kind. These Jews are here to destroy Philippi, they yell out. Who's leading this parade, Titus asks in disbelief. I don't know, Quintus says, but whoever it is, they managed to incite the entire city of Philippi. Look at the crowd they have amassed. Oh, my word, Titus says. They keep spilling in back there. What are they chanting, Quintus asks. No more Jews, Titus says. No more Jews. Something is wrong, Luke says as he looks over at Gaius. I don't know what, but I know Paul said he would be right behind us. Too much time has gone by for us not to be concerned over this. Hearing Luke's concern, Lydia walks over and asks, You must be talking about Paul and Silas, right? Luke nods his head. With her eyebrows newly furrowed and a look of concern, Lydia wonders aloud, Maybe we should head back to our home. Perhaps something has held them. She stops, and her eyes suddenly widen. Looking over Luke's shoulders, she sees a familiar and unexpected face. Uh-oh, she quietly says. Luke turns around. Isn't that the same girl? Lydia finishes his sentence. Who has been following you for days now? Yes, that's the one. She then stands to stare at the woman only a few feet away and asks, What are you? Wait, she says. Something has happened. The woman nods her head and begins to tear. They've taken them. I tried to stop them, but... Joining the conversation, Timothy and Gaius blurt out at the same time, Taken who? The men you've come with, the woman says. Oh, no, Gaius says. We've got to help them. Come on. He pats Timothy on the leg and gets to his feet. Wait, the woman says. If they have them, they will take and punish you as well. By now, they've taken them to the magistrates in the middle of the city. Luke shakes his head in confusion and asks, Slow down, everyone. He then looks at the woman and asks, For what crime are they being punished? For healing me, the woman says. You're the young woman who has been following us all this time, Timothy asks. Yes, the woman responds. What's your name, sweetie? Lydia asks as she brushes the young woman's hair out from her face. What was wrong with you? Cora, the young woman says. The gods have left me, and so do my owners. Right after they saw that your friend did this to me. Honestly, I don't know what to do now. With a compassionate smirk, Lydia looks at the others and says, 
Come with us for now. Let's get you fed. Quintus raises his hand to a chanting crowd and commands, Silence! The mob quiets down and looks over at Xander to speak. How dare you incite a mob and threaten a riot, Titus says indignantly. Don't you realize that we can call up several centuries to surround you in a matter of seconds? Xander places his arms up in the air and says, My lords, we have no desire to riot against Rome. We are loyal servants to you and Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. The crowd erupts in cheers. Xander quiets the crowd. But these men, he says as he calls for Orion and some other men to bring a bloodied Paul and Silas in front of the magistrates, the men happily oblige and throw the two at Quintus's feet, are not loyal to Rome, Xander continues. Quintus and Titus look at the disfigured men laying before them and back at Xander. What do you mean? These men are proselytizing their Jewish customs and culture here in Philippi a practice that you well know that Emperor Claudius has forbidden throughout Rome, Xander says. These Jewish men are throwing our city into confusion by proclaiming unlawful customs for us as Romans to follow. What evidence do you have of this, Quintus asks. Where's your proof? Look around us, my lords, Xander says. There are many here who have witnessed firsthand how this man, he points at Paul, has called upon his God to remove the gods who were inside one of our fortune tellers. We have a gifted woman who has helped the well-being of many people right here in Philippi for years. This Jew laying in front of you not only removed the gods from our girl, he and his partner have been steadily meeting with other people of the city to proclaim their God as supreme over Rome's gods. No, the crowd erupts again. No more Jews, no more Jews. Xander smiles at the crowd's enthusiasm. Wait, he yells out. There's something far worse that has happened. Not only do they wish to usurp the authority of our gods, they wish to destroy our economy. They wish to destroy our allegiance. They wish to destroy Rome. They said that their god is supreme over Claudius himself. No, no, the crowd gets worked up again. Quintus kneels down on a knee in front of Paul, whose face is against the ground. Is what they have said true? Have you said that your God is supreme over the emperor himself? Paul slightly turns his head to look at Silas, closes his eyes, and begins praying. Answer me, Quintus yells out in exasperation. That's it, Titus responds, as he looks over at his primus lictor standing at attention. Strip them and beat them. I want a confession, understand? Titus's primus lictor whistles to his subordinates nearby and yells out, Men, unwrap the fasces and bring out the rods. He then looks back at Titus and asks, And what are the acts, my lord? Titus looks back at his servant and says, Let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. Well, we're going to stop here for today. Oh my! What is to become of Paul and Silas here in Philippi, a Roman city where proselytizing was considered illegal under the rule of Emperor Claudius? Well, let's see. Here we have Paul, Silas, and the gang going into the heart of a predominantly Roman city to share Jesus as the king of the universe to a city who sees these messengers as a threat. 
Emperor Claudius had already expelled the Jewish population out of Rome some ten years earlier, and they weren't even the evangelizing type. Now here we have a new breed of Jew, those that proselytize and speak out against the gods of a pagan culture, elevating a very foreign and singular god. Or at least, this is how the Romans saw things. So what was so threatening about these five guys making gospel inroads into a Roman city? Well, first, there's a spiritual threat. While the Romans could not necessarily unify on their own spiritual customs, preferences, and disciplines, they could unify when it came to expelling monotheistic Judaism and Christianity, which in their mind would be regarded as even worse, out from their midst. How were Judaism and Christianity seen as threats in Rome? First, we have the Roman understanding that my spiritual beliefs are private. What I believe is my business, so what gives you the right to come and share otherwise? Curiously, sharing and debating were the norm within philosophical and political realms, where sides would be presented with the hopes of conversion, Yet in spiritual matters during this time, presenting an argument against one's privately held beliefs was seen as a no-no. My spiritual beliefs are to remain private. Second, the Romans saw that spiritual beliefs are abstract and hard to pin down. This is especially true within Rome. By now, Rome had become thirsty for annexation. Slavery was a huge component of Rome's economic prosperity. When Rome would come to occupy and quote-unquote adopt another people group, Rome was very easygoing about adopting whatever gods each people group served. Over time, Rome had become a very multicultural nation with lots of people groups and lots of gods. From Rome's vantage point, they figured, why upset an already displaced people group by removing the gods they worship? The Greeks tried this over and over, and well, they're no longer in charge, are they? Rome thought, when in Rome. So, when the Jews and later those evangelical Christians came to town, Rome wasn't too excited to see them because this when in Rome norm would be threatened. But not only was there a spiritual threat, there was also a political threat. Winning over the people at a grassroots level can unnerve any existing institutional leader and usually results in severe backlash against the movement. A movement among the common people is often seen as a political threat. The New Testament recounts several incidents where Christianity was seen as such a threat. For example, Luke in chapter 23, 1-5 writes how those in the Sanhedrin made claims stating how Jesus forbade his followers to pay taxes to Rome. He didn't say that. Mark wrote about a similar allegation made by those seeking to indict Jesus for insurrection and threatening destruction against the temple. That's Mark 14.58. He didn't threaten either. Later, in John's Gospel, John explains how certain members within the Sanhedrin threatened Pilate for being out of alignment with Caesar because Pilate wished to let Jesus go unpunished. They claimed that should Pilate let Jesus go free, then he was no friend of Caesar. John 19.12-13. Yet another political allegation was made against Stephen after a debate with some Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. They then made the charge that Stephen was speaking against the temple and against the Mosaic law itself. While each allegation is determined to be false, the greater issue is the fear of political upheaval against an existing institution. 
Even when the current way of doing things has some clear negative outcomes, those benefiting from what is current will be highly reluctant to make the needed changes. There's just too much to lose. Third, an economic threat. Not unlike the aforementioned political threat or the lifestyle that will be mentioned in a moment, economic compromise or loss may force us to start over financially and status-wise. It might even be the undoing of what we've spent a lifetime to build. For those nearing retirement, some now wonder if the plans they've made to retire are now even possible. And for those of us who might be a little status-sensitive, yep, this includes me, the fear of financial loss threatens the way we think others see and value us. We don't like the idea of being considered as less in their eyes, and not having a high-standing status might undo our relationships. Come on, Andy, nobody's that shallow, you might be thinking. Unfortunately, V and I have felt this reality on several occasions, where we couldn't simply do the things our friends wanted to do just because we couldn't afford it. It wasn't long before they selected other friends who could spend like they could and left us in the dust. Yeah, I realize this violates what it means to be identified with Christ, but it's still a very real thing for many of us, even within the church. So, an economic threat. On top of that, number four, a lifestyle threat. Like I said, the overlap of these types of threats is pretty clear, but a lifestyle threat comes when you ask me to make a commitment that will cost. What am I willing to give up to become committed? In most cases, this is a lifestyle cost question at work. If what you are offering, even if it's good for me, forces me to make unwanted changes, then you can expect resistance. Even within the past two months, we have forfeited much in this area due to coronavirus. Many have lost their jobs, some stand to lose their homes, and we will all lose in other ways. We have had many restrictions placed upon us, been given a fair amount of conflicting information, and we have chosen to err on the safe side. None of us wanted this, but COVID-19 has forced lifestyle change upon all of us. In the case of Paul, Silas, and the others, their message of hope would be welcomed by some. But for those who were doing well, the message would threaten their interests. For those who were currently benefiting from the existing system, Paul's message of hope would have not been seen that way. So what do we do when our lifestyle is threatened? That's right, we seek to destroy the messengers. These bold Christians would undergo all levels of pain here in Philippi, including being stripped naked, chained to a post, and beaten with rods, and sometimes beheaded, because of their commitment to following and proclaiming Jesus. They were not on earth merely to maintain a lifestyle. They went from town to town to rise up and shine the light of Christ into the lives of those they met, unfettered by how poorly they would be treated. What threat do you resonate with? Lifestyle threat? Economic threat? Political threat? Furthermore, how would you respond if you were one of the many characters in this story? Something to think about, right? Well, that's all the time that we have for this week. May God release you and me from the baggage that comes from maintaining our lifestyles. Furthermore, may our Lord employ us, as with Paul, Silas, and the gang, to offer his message of hope to a needy world. Well, that's it for now. Now, let's move forward together. Together.